And, and I don't want that invitation to be lost in this sermon. And so I would just simply ask this morning, if you find yourself ashamed, if you find yourself broken, if you find yourself with a past that you are completely embarrassed about, that you're trying to stuff so that no one would ever know, perhaps even trying to so deceive yourself to think that if God maybe could never even know about it, then just maybe he might accept the likes of me. Like if that's you, I would just encourage you, Christmas is the time where we like to get everything out and we, we take photos and man, we send them around and they are like the best. Like no one that I know of has sent the photo of just the house is a wreck and my, the family is barely hanging on by a thread. I just want you to know if that's the kind of life that you have, if that's the kind of past that you have, you don't have to keep dressing it up as though somehow if God never knew, then God would accept you. No, the good news of the gospel of the Christian faith is that because of Christ, you can be fully known by God and fully accepted by God. If, if, you will be fully transparent with God about your problems. He's the one who can, because of the work of his son, make all things broken, new, and whole again. And so he comes from a lineage of brokenness to redeem brokenness. And these women that we've, that we've thought about so far, Tamar two weeks ago, Rahab last week, and this morning we focus on the person of Ruth. And so let's understand Ruth's story, and let's make the connection to how Ruth fits into the Christmas story, the Advent season, the birth of Jesus. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is the eighth book in the Old Testament. It's tucked in between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's four chapters. If you have never read the book of Ruth, I would encourage you to read the book of Ruth even today. Some say it's the most moving and beautiful and poignant love story ever recorded. Ruth is the only book that's named after a non-Israelite, someone that wasn't a part of God's covenant people. Naomi seems to be at the center of this book, and Boaz speaks the most in this book. And so Ruth's story really unfolds over the course of these four chapters, and the challenge this morning is trying to take such an incredible story and sifting it down to just the high-level bird's-eye view over the whole book. And I think if we're going to understand the book of Ruth, it would be helpful for us to begin at the last verse of the book of Judges right before Ruth. And so if your Bibles are open, you can just flip over, look at the, different, the previous page and see the last verse. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. 
And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So anytime we think about the period of the judges or the time of the judges, when you hear that, even in verse 1, when the judges governed, that should key us off, that should clue us into the fact that this is a time of chaos. Like Joshua has died, Saul, who would be the first king of God's people, hasn't been appointed God's king yet, and so there were judges that were ruling. And these judges, by and large, were terrible. I mean, they were not good people. People were doing whatever they wanted to do, and in the midst of this, God's people, they are suffering. They're languishing under this lack of leadership. There's chaos in the land. One neighbor doing what was right in his eyes, another neighbor doing what was right in his eyes. And it didn't matter if those two views of right didn't uh, mesh and and blend well together. It, It didn't matter. And so one was doing right, what they thought was right. Another was doing what they thought was right. Added to this chaos, we read in verse 1 of Ruth 1, is there's now a famine in the land of Bethlehem. The irony there should not be missed. Bethlehem, two words put together, house, bread. There is a famine in the place that is known as the house of bread. There's famine in the bakery. There's emptiness everywhere. There's brokenness. There's chaos. And so we'll follow three markers this morning that will guide us through the story of Ruth. And then we'll finish with an overarching truth about God. Three markers to get us through the book of Ruth. Overarching truth. First marker is this. Naomi's desolation. Naomi's desolation. You heard... The, uh, the genealogy that would lead us to Rahab. Let's just listen to how the book of Ruth starts. The man, picking up in verse 2, the, man, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and, and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Imelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. The two sons take for themselves Moabite women as wives. One was Orpah, the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. If you just keep reading on, what we'll find is that the sons then die. Naomi's desolation. Desolation means a state of complete emptiness. And so think then about just how the whole book of Ruth is set up. At a time of famine in the land of Bethlehem, this one family, Elimelech and Naomi, with their two sons, they head to the land of Moab. And just to maybe give give you a picture of just how bad it was, it helps us to understand what this land of Moab was like. Who were the Moabites? Well, the Moabites were perpetual enemies of God and his people. And so the fact that a family would choose to go to an enemy of your people helps us to understand just how dark the days were 
Moabites lived in the land of Moab. They descended from a man named Moab. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 19, I mean, again, I just want you to think about the story, how all of this is coming from. Genesis 19 tells us that Moab was the son of Lot. Maybe you're thinking, okay, uh, Genesis 19, Lot. Yeah, Lot and his family lived in the God-forsaken place, literally, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived there with his family and his two daughters. God in kindness allows Lot and his family to head out of Sodom and Gomorrah so as to avoid the destruction that he was going to bring because they were such a godless people. And so on the way going out, God gives them instructions not to turn back and look at to the destruction, literally, that he's raining down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as he... As they're going out of the city, Lot's wife turns around and looks. And in a moment of just judgment, God turns her into a pillar of salt. And so now Lot and his two daughters, they find refuge in a cave on their way out of the city. And while in the cave, their daughters, the two daughters decide, we don't have husbands. We don't have any offspring. How in the world are we going to provide for ourselves? So what do we do? The daughters come up with this idea to get Lot, their father, drunk, that just maybe they would then be able to have children with their dad. Again, we think Christmas, ah, yeah, we don't talk about this. Like, let's look away from this kind of perverted brokenness. And there's something that is meant to hold our attention, if we would just look and see the level of depravity that's embedded in this genealogy of the one who would come, who's perfect in all of his ways. And so Lot's oldest daughter gets pregnant with Lot's son, who is named Moab. And so you think then the Moabites, they are a people that have descended from the product of drunken incest and shameful brokenness. And so if you're here and you're thinking, listen, I have a messed up family. Therefore, God certainly must not have a place for me. I would just encourage you, Ruth had a messed up family. And yet she finds herself in the genealogy of this coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ. If you think this morning that God's not interested in you because of the dark past of your family, then think again. He's come from a lineage of brokenness to redeem brokenness. And so these days are incredibly tragic and dark. Elimelech dies. The two sons then take Moabite women for wives, which would not have been honoring unto the Lord. And so the five, Naomi, her two sons, and her two daughter-in-laws live in the land of Moab for about 10 years. And then, and then tragedy strikes again, and, and Naomi's two sons die. Again, they die. There's no child that has been conceived. Therefore, they have no hope for perpetuating their family line. Three widows in the first five verses of the book of Ruth. Chaos in the land of Bethlehem. Ungodly 
sickness in the, the land of Moab. Everyone is grieving. Everyone is lacking. Everyone is empty. Everything is brokenness. And as an older widow, she's not just, she would be vulnerable as a widow, Naomi would be. But as an older widow, she is one of the most vulnerable. She doesn't have parents to go back to. She's actually sold her land in Bethlehem. She doesn't have a place to go back to in Bethlehem. There's no prospect of a new suitor. There's no adult children to care for her. So Naomi determines that the best course of action, really in one of the most selfless and sacrificial moments and means of loving another person, Naomi says, daughters-in-law, Orpah, Ruth, it makes no sense for you to stay with me. I have no prospect of a hope of a future. Better for you to go back. Uh, She was getting ready. uh, Naomi had made plans to go back to Bethlehem. And she says, better for you, daughters-in-law, for you to stay in the land of Moab, to go back to your families." There you'll have protection, you'll have provision, you're young enough, there, you potentially will even have another husband in the days ahead. And just selfless, like Naomi says, in order for you to have a future, I'm willing to forego one myself. So go back to your families. Naomi knows that these young widows, if they come back with her, they're not only going to be widows and the challenges that are therein, But there's off-the-chart animosity between Moab and Israel. And so for these two Moabite widows to show up back in in Bethlehem would have been so much animosity for them. Later on, we'll read Boaz even talks about how he's going to go out of his way to ensure that they are protected because there's so many opportunities for them to be taken advantage of. And so she plans to send Orpah and Ruth back to their families To stay with Naomi would have been such a hopeless decision. Orpah weeps at the thought of leaving her mother-in-law. And she does. She leaves. And the question then is, well, what about Ruth? And that brings us to the second marker. Ruth's courage. We see this in verses 15 of chapter 1 through verse 9 of chapter 3. And so just listen to Ruth's courage. Ruth 1, 15. So then she, being Naomi, said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Naomi, or Ruth, is at a crossroads. And she's about to make a decision. This widowed immigrant is about to make a decision that runs contrary to what immigrants do. An immigrant is someone who takes a risk by leaving the known 
to go to the unknown in hopes of a better life. Like someone leaves the known, this is what we're familiar with, and they go into the unknown. We don't know what awaits us, but what drives us to leave this, to go to this, is this hope for a better life. Ruth actually does the very opposite of that. Ruth says, I know that the better life is here, and if I go with Naomi, I'm signing up for a life that's worse. And yet, courageously and lovingly, that's what Ruth does. She signs up for the harder life. I believe at this point, especially when Naomi says, Ruth, go back to your gods. And in this speech, right, it's this speech that oftentimes is uh, spoken at weddings. Uh, not that that's wrong, but it, it just takes a different type of perspective to understand, like, your people will be my people. That's not like a wedding speech. That's a, I'm about to make the hardest decision that I've ever made to sign up for a life, not of hope, but one that's very, very dark, not a lot of hope. And I'm going to do this. Why? I think the key is because I believe Ruth is converted. Like she says, no, 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 I don't want my gods. I want your God. Like I want your God. I was helped this week even, even thinking, humanly speaking, why did, why did Ruth decide to give up a better life to go with Naomi. Reading Tim Keller, he, ha- he made a statement that is just, it literally has just churned in my heart all week of just saying, Ruth must have seen this sacrificial act by Naomi as one of the most selfless things that she could have done. Like Naomi is willing to give up everything about her future so that Ruth would have a better future. And Tim Keller says it's the, it's the experience of being sacrificially loved that Ruth would have said, I want your God because my God doesn't supply love like that. I mean, it's, it's this beautiful story. Ruth is willing to go the harder route And so Ruth says, if I keep my life, then Naomi will lose her life. Therefore, I want to lose my life so that Naomi will keep her life. Ruth says, I will take on Naomi's marginality. I will take on her poverty. I will take on her shame. I will take on her hurts so that she can have a better life. So what does Ruth do? Ruth leaves her father's house, her father's country. She becomes an outsider. She ends up even being one who serves in her suffering. She was rejected. As we're reading this, we should begin to go, wait a minute, does that remind us of anyone else? And it does. It reminds us of just the measure of the the true suffering servant, the one who left his father's realm to become an outsider, to live rejected, all humanly speaking, beginning here in the manger.
the story continues. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all of the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? Their arrival is quite the event. After 10 years of being gone, the whole town is stirred because Naomi is back. And yet they would have noticed that she came back with with fewer family members. She left with her husband and two sons, and she comes back with a Moabite woman. The effects of the suffering are so great that her, her friends even question, wait, is this Naomi? Naomi is so embittered by the experience that, they, that she demands, no, 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 don't call me Naomi, verse 20, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And so, no, 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 like I have gone away and when I left, my name meant pleasant. And now that I've come back, don't call me pleasant anymore. I can't, I can't believe that God has been pleasant with me. So call me Mara. He's been very bitter with me. She demands a name change that really does reflect her perspective about God. And it's interesting she has a conviction about God's sovereignty, right? She can look at Orpah and Ruth and she can say, there's a better life for you. Like, go, go and do this. Like, but when she looks at herself, she believes that God has been harsh, that he somehow has targeted her. She's convinced that the hand of the Lord is against her, that he has dealt bitterly with her. But they're now back in the land of Bethlehem and they must find food. And so God's provision in those days for the poor was called this, this process of gleaning. And so the poor, what they could do is they could go into the the, the plot of land that landowners had in the very edges of the land, they could, they could glean. As harvesters would go through the land and they would harvest the food, any time that some of the food would have fallen out of the bags, they were told not to go back and pick them up. And in fact, to leave the edges of the land unharvested so that the poor could come and they could be provided for. And so this act of gleaning was something that God had instituted so as to provide for those that were in need. And so Naomi says, Ruth, now that we're here, I can't glean. And so Naomi says, Ruth, would you go? And so Ruth begins gleaning, and the text will tell us that it just so happened that she was gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. We're told he is a noble man, when he hears about Ruth gleaning in his field, he begins to take interest in her. He's moved by her story. He has compassion on her. He invites her to dinner. He provides for her. But he also provides for Naomi. It's not just caring for her while she's gleaning, but even as she's going back, Boaz says, 
to his people, hey, make sure that when she leaves, she leaves with all that she needs. And so he sends her home with 30 to 50 pound uh, sacks of barley. I mean, he's a noble man. And again, I just think, remember the genealogy. Boaz was the son of Salmon, the husband of Rahab. Boaz was Rahab's son. Rahab was the prostitute from Jericho. In my sanctified imagination, I wonder, how, do, how did Rahab raise Boaz? I, I, he, she must have raised him with an inclination of heart to care for those who would have been outcast, to care for those who would have been needy, to care for the foreign, to care for the oppressed, to care for the downtrodden. Ruth comes home and tells Naomi about this man. Naomi hears it and says, wait a minute, what? You ended up in Boaz's field? Uh, Let me tell you the story of Boaz. He's one of the kinsmen redeemers. And if you don't know what a kinsman redeemer is, that means nothing to you. What was a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer was anyone, it, it, was, it, was the, it was someone who was kin to another who then lost their family. So how in the world would this family lineage continue if there was no husband in order to keep the lineage going? Well, there would be a kinsman redeemer. Someone in the family of this husband who had been lost could step in, give financial responsibility, provide a child so that the lineage, the family name could continue. And so they were a kinsman. They were akin to this person who had been lost, but they were also a redeemer. They were bringing about hope for a future lineage. Naomi had lost her land when they went to Moab. But a kinsman redeemer had the right to buy back that land for the family. And whoever owned it, it didn't matter if they wanted to sell the land or not. This was part of what it meant to be a part of the people of God. The redeemer wouldn't only have to buy back the land, they would have to marry Specifically in this situation, they have to marry Ruth, who was a despised Moabite. So this wasn't the most promising prospect. Uh, Boaz, will you pay for the land that we sold? So it's going to cost you financially. Uh, Boaz, would you also take on this marriage? this interracial marriage where there is so much hostility between Israel and Moab. Boaz had the right to that, but the question is, why would he want that? Like, why in the world would he want this interracial marriage? Why would he want to have a despised wife? Why would he want to spend a lot of money? It would be because of one reason, because he was a man of noble character. And he would be moved by deep love. It seemed like a long shot. Naomi devises this plan for for Ruth to go to the threshing room floor when they're harvesting and they're sort of separating the the grain and the wheat and and, and the seed. and, And they would wait until Boaz had had his fill of food and drink. And then when he lay down to sleep, 
The plan was for Naomi to go and uncover his feet, which either could have been a sexual advance or a marriage proposal. And I understand this to be the latter. That in this act, that literally could have, she could have lost her life at so many points because of how dangerous this was. But in this act, she's coming and requesting that Boaz marry and protect and provide and assume responsibility for her. And I believe Boaz understands that. Ruth chapter 3 verse 9. He wakes, he's startled at at night, his feet are uncovered. And he says, who are you? There's, There's a woman there, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And just listen to Boaz. He said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. Like you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So I don't think this is like sexual promiscuity happening on the threshing room floor. And you think, man, like Boaz says, uh, or Ruth says in this proposal, like, I'm not asking you to marry me because of me. Like, I know you have nothing to gain by me. I'm asking you to marry me because of, because of you, because of who you are, because of your character. You are a redeemer. For eight weeks, she has watched him and she's heard others talk of him and she's witnessed his joy in the Lord. She knows the kind of man that he is. And that gives her confidence to follow through on this audacious plan that Naomi makes. And that leads us to the third marker, Boaz's redemption. Boaz's redemption. And you read those verses, verses 10 and 11, and you think, yes, like he's going to do it. Like you, at this point, if you go back and read them, I mean, you're kind of caught up. Not caught up like you know where you're at. You're all caught up in the story. I mean, you're you're going, you're kind of cheering, yes, like we want Boaz to say yes. Like we want Ruth to know provision and protection, and we want her to know love. She is a worthy woman. And so Boaz says, Yeah, I agree. I agree to spread my wings over you, Ruth. Since she's arrived, she's been a heartbroken and destitute widow, but she's had this fervent love and fierce loyalty to her mother-in-law. She's been gleaning as a beggar, and now there's the prospect that she is going to be a bride. And then a complication in verse 12. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And you're just going, wait, what? No, 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 no. You're like, we love Boaz and his character. And then he's like, I would love to do this. But because I'm a man of integrity, there's someone who has the first right of refusal. And we're going, no, no, no. What's, what if it's a bad man? Like, what if this is not good? 
how disorienting this must have been for Ruth. Hope fulfilled, now hope deferred. Boaz assures Ruth that he will resolve the matter and that she will be cared for. So he sends her off with six measures of barley. And we find at the beginning of chapter four, Boaz at the, at the city gates, it just so happened that on the day that Boaz was there that the next in line redeemer comes by. And Boaz shares the story and gives him the opportunity to be the redeemer. And the guy says, yes. And, and, and if, yeah, maybe, maybe you're not as bought up in it, but I'm reading this and I'm like mad. I'm like, no, no, how? This is, this is Boaz's story. And he says, yes. And then Boaz says, oh, and also it's not just, are you willing to pay for the land? And not only do you have to take her for a wife, but there's also a mother-in-law that you have to care for. And he's like, I'm out. That was kind of a joke, but he really does say that. And Boaz in that moment says, in front of all of the witnesses at the gate, like, I will redeem her. I will redeem her. Boaz, with a heart motivated by love for Ruth and a desire to care for Naomi, eagerly makes this sacrifice. And you come to the end of the book of Ruth and you go, okay, that's a beautiful story. Like, how is this pushing us towards Advent? I think there's one overarching truth that's helpful for us to remember that maybe even makes sense of the genealogy of Jesus. And that overarching truth is this, that God is always at work even when we can't see it. God is always at work even when we can't see it. Look at how the book of Ruth ends. Ruth chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. Boaz, Ruth will come together. They will have a child. Naomi, the mother-in-law, took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And a neighbor, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named that baby Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. You think, wait a minute, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, Matthew chapter 1. The book closes with a scene, women celebrating, dancing around Naomi, praise God for what he's done. I mean, these women even say to Naomi, like Ruth is better than seven sons to you. And just step back and you think like, what is happening here? And you have this picture of this woman who in many ways mirrors the picture of what was happening among the people of God. Like Naomi is barren and God's people, they're empty. There's no judges, there's famine, right? If you just step back and you begin to say, wait a minute, what's unfolding in Naomi's life is really, it kind of helps us understand what's unfolding among God's people. There's barrenness, there's bitterness, there's chaos. 
There's a hope for restoration. She loses her husband, her sons, her family line. She loses all hope, but her story doesn't end in chaos. It begins in chaos and it ends in peace and in restoration. And she will end up being one of the great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus. Ruth, a pagan woman descended from a family of incest, a widow with no hope, leaves her homeland to be a pauper, commits her life to her mother-in-law, and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, it's staggering. Like, if all we did were to read the first 16 verses of the book of Ruth, and I just stopped it, and I said, okay, you guys tell me how the story is going to end. I don't think any of us are putting this story together. And that's really, I mean, that's what we do. We look at the facts. We then say, based on what we can see, then this is how we think it's going to unfold. And that's a normal thing to do. But when it comes to matters concerning this God, the God of the Bible, that's not the only thing to do. And so how is your story going? You're looking at the facts of where you've been. You're looking at the facts of what you're walking through. And you're drawing conclusions about how it's all going to end. And I wonder if you've made provision that just maybe God is doing something beautiful that I can't even see. That where there's hurt and suffering and brokenness, that there's the possibility of redemption. God is writing this story not just to redeem the story for Ruth and Naomi. He's actually writing their story to be a part of a bigger story where he's redeeming all of his people from all times in all places. In the chaos and the loneliness and the poverty and the sadness and the barrenness and the brokenness, it just so happens. Like it's too circumstantial to not be providential. Did it just so happen that Ruth landed in the field of the guy who would be the Redeemer, who had the right to be the Redeemer, who would then bring about the Messiah of the world? Like God loves and often does his best work in the mundane, ordinary places in ways that you and I can't see. He loves to work in the hard times. He loves to work in the shadows, even when we can't see it. I love what John Piper said about the book of Ruth. He says, what the book of Ruth does for us, it gives us a glimpse into the hidden work of God during the worst of times. He is at work doing a thousand things that no one can see but him. When you think he's the farthest from you or even has turned against you, 
as you cling to him, he's laying a foundation for greater happiness in your life. What would Naomi say if she could only see a fraction of the thousands of things that God was doing in the bitter providences of her life? And Piper says, I think I know what she may say. I think she might say, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And that's what Ruth teaches us. Ruth teaches us that God is at work in the worst of times, even when bitterness blinds us. And perhaps you're here and you can identify with the level of suffering or some measure of suffering like Ruth or like Naomi. I just pray then that you would be encouraged to see that even in the worst of times, God is still kind. That there are evidence that are present And those evidences are to be cherished. Like There are evidences that God is at work even in the darkest of days. And I know that to be true because God is always at work. He never never clocks out. There's not a shift that goes unmanaged. He is on the clock all the time. And so whether it's the It's hidden in the stress of the financial famine or the loss or the sorrow. Is it possible that whatever you're walking through, that God is at work even though you can't see it? Naomi could not have said in Moab that I will end up holding the baby of one from whom will come the Messiah of the world. She couldn't have known it. And in the same way, there are are plans for your good that you cannot know will come about because you are mired in the difficulty and the suffering today. And so when you can't see and trace his hand for what he's doing, will you trust that his heart is good? that his character is trustworthy, and that he is kind. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, says a gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. Like our tendency is to pour over our losses rather than to ponder our mercies. And sadly, oftentimes, our hearts are more discontent at one loss than are thankful for a hundred mercies. And so Ruth helps us, gives us eyes to see the hidden work of God at all times in all ways. And so what about your shadows? What about your storylines? Maybe you're not sure. But I wonder if hidden in the details, there is a plan for redemption. And that really is the same story of Christmas. An unwed, pregnant teenager. More public shame and outcastness than you and I would even know. A guy named Joseph saying, hey, I didn't do it, but I'm willing to stay. 
Caesar Augustus calling for a census that requires this unwed pregnant mom to take a donkey to Bethlehem and they get there and it just so happens that there's no room in the inn. And so they go into a manger and this baby is born. An unwed, outcast teenage mom in a manger after traveling across the country where there's no room in the end. If I were to ask you to stop before they get to the manger and I was to say, how does this story end? Like, I don't know if any of us are putting this all together. There's chaos in Bethlehem. Judges were ruling when Ruth was there. Rome was ruling when Joseph and Mary were there. In the same hills of Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi are in. That's what's happening in the shadows and the chaos of Bethlehem. In this obscure manger, a story of cosmic redemption is underway. And one who's greater than Boaz, Jesus, has come to buy you back to himself. He paid the cost for all your rebellion against the holy God by becoming sin for you, for all who would repent and believe, so that they might become the righteousness of God. He endured the wrath of God so that in faith you wouldn't have to. And after being buried, he's, he rose on the third day, delivers the death blow to death, so that all who turn from sin and trust in, in his work alone, they can have everlasting life with him. He wasn't just willing to come and pay the cost. No, he came to draw near. He didn't just want you, faceless person you in. Like he wants friendship with you. And so... If you're not a Christian this morning, you're far from God and you think, man, I've got too many skeletons in my closet. God wouldn't even want the likes of me. And I meet so many non-Christians who in conversations say, like, this sounds really good, but God doesn't even want me. I just want you to know, his genealogy says he came for people just like you. Like he came for people like you. If you're wondering if God wants you, you are the kind of person that he has come to love and to make new. He was made an outsider so that you would be brought, brought near. And he was made an outsider in dying on the cross. If you trust him, his sinless life can be credited to you by faith. And the wrath that you deserve for your sin will not fall on you, has been absorbed by him. He seeks the outcast. He shelters the weak under his wings. He serves the hungry at his, at his table. And he showers the needy with his grace. That's the good news of Christmas. And if you're not a Christian, I pray you don't just hear the good news. I pray you would want to come to the one who brings the good news. Who is the good news. And Christian, like, don't forget, you were once an outsider. Like, this is the reason we gave today, because we want those that are far from God to be brought in. Not just here in our city, but around among all peoples. And the longer that we walk with Christ, pride begins to make us think, yeah, you know what? Like, I deserved what I received. Just let this story remind you, we deserved nothing that we've received. 
And so you can take heart. The same God that had your best interest in mind for your most foundational and fundamental need still has your best interest in mind in the midst of the suffering you are enduring. God really does work in mysterious ways. And there are his wonders to perform. And so I pray that this Advent season, that we would lean into the message of Ruth and the message of Christmas, that working in the shadows and the pains and the perversions and the brokenness and the bleak situations, we find a God who is bringing about redemption. And that's why we celebrate the coming of Jesus, because he's ushered it in. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you for good news of great joy. There is so much hope for the likes of us. And so even as we think about how we respond today, I pray that we would respond in humility pray that we would respond in honesty. I pray that you would allow us to see our deep need and then be convinced that only Jesus can meet it. And so we thank you for doing far more than we even know or can see. And I pray that you would give us faith to believe it. And so in this moment of silence, speak to us, we pray.